like Eat. going to bars like drinking netflix is great have you heard of the office it's an amazing show Welcome back, everyone. Did <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> you say welcome Did you back? Did you slap yourself? <laughs> no, but like, I we already like a... said hello to everybody, and then the music comes, and then we're saying hello again. <laughs> hello, everybody. <laughs> How's it going, gamers? My name's Bobby. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start. <laughs> no, 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 I got this. What are you drinking today, Bo? I'm actually... Uh trying the citrus and piney uh indian pale ale again this is the one i had for endocrine part one i didn't give it great reviews and i got some feedback from a listener saying i should definitely give it another chance so i'm doing that again and uh we'll see how it goes nice about you? um well that's only fair given you know this is the continuation of the first episode so i guess you should gives you an opportunity to try it again uh i'm drinking franz it's by uh Rheingeist, which is a like a cincinnati brewery local to ohio and it's a it's a beer. France kind of sounds like a wine. Yeah, no, it's beer. It's uh, an Oktoberfest ale. I don't really know cool. what that means, but it's pretty good. Well, it's almost October, isn't it? Uh, he said in August. Is it? Yeah, I was gonna, is there, is, <laughs> aren't we aren't we missing a month? Yeah, what's well, a couple months between friends? This whole year is kind of flown by. Yeah, I mean time's really relative these days. Just an illusion. Amen. I'll drink to that. Let's go. Cheers. Synchronize. <sighs> All right. We'll start off where we kind of ended last time with a little bit more of the thyroid because I was doing a little bit more reading. And this seems kind of more step one relevant, but it was found in some step two study materials. So All right. it's easy just to remember and it's high yield. So let's do it. Someone comes in and you're worried about Hashimoto's and you want to get a couple antibodies. Any antibodies come to mind? Yeah, so there's actually three um, that you want to know about. There's anti-thyroglobulin, uh, anti-TPO, which is uh, thyroid peroxidase, and then I always forget what the third one is. Thyroglobulin, thyroid peroxidase. Um, and then I think it's the third like one is the often yeah the conversion Sorry. enzyme or whatever. It's like the third one is tough. The, you're you're right with the first two. The first, third one is tough because it's confused with another one. It's antimicrosomal, and then that one can be confused with like antimitochondrial, which is a totally different right. autoimmune process. So yep. What well, exactly I got two say? out of three, so I'll take a, a third of a sip then. There you go. I'll, I'll uh, third sip of that. And then just one more for the thyroid. So you have the patient come in, pregnant woman. You need to put her on either methimazole and or propothiouracil. Mm -hmm. Which one do you use? And she's in her first trimester. So the risk, usually methimazole is kind of the gold standard for people taking thyroid suppressing drugs when they're not pregnant. But there's a risk of uh, what is it, cutis aplasia, where you have like a failure of development of the scalp with that. So you actually want to use uh, propothiouracil for the first trimester, and then you can switch over to methimazole for the second and third. Perfect. And I always remember this from a YouTube video I once watched 
uh, from uh, Sing Me USMLE. It was to the tune of uh, Shut Up and Dance with Me. And it says something along the lines of Methamizzle, unused in first trimester, a plastic cutis, no skin on the head. So just something that's always stuck yeah, with me. Check out their channel. Good that's channel. really catchy. Um, another way you can also remember is just the probothiuracil and pregnancy both start with P. Makes it a little bit easier to keep track. Oh, yeah. I do like that. Alrighty. So uh, if the patient doesn't want to take drugs, um, what trimester is it safe to do a thyroidectomy in for a surgery? Third trimester. So you would think that, but actually it's the second is the third also safe? Uh, I would have to get back to you on that, but I, I think of the second as kind of the Goldilocks zone. I mean, the first trimester, they're they're not far enough along in pregnancy, so the baby can't really take it. And then as you're getting into the third trimester, you're getting closer to actually delivering. So it's kind of like the furthest away from both of those events is the safest time. Interesting. That'd be a tough question. Imagine yeah. if they asked you that. I, I just remember it because I got pimp on it once during third year and then... Uh, did not get it right for obvious reasons. <laughs> well, I'll drink to that. Drink to OB-GYN uh, rotation. Cheers. RIP. Male medical students. RIP in pieces. Okay, so what you got? What next? I got just very basic. If someone comes in and the prompt is like, this is mixed edema coma, what do you do? What's kind of like the first line treatment? So you're going to give them T4? And then you're going to give them warmed IV fluids and also going to rewarm them uh, externally. Oh, I like that. I like that. The one thing I'd add is for some reason you give them IV hydrocortisone or just IV steroids, hmm. which kind of makes sense in the setting of um, they probably have like this low, uh, I don't know, adrenergic drive or low, I don't know, cortisol or. Yeah, I'd imagine there's probably some amount of circulatory collapse. So like anything that can pump those blood pressures up probably helpful and like what's probably the main cause of mixed edema coma is it like an autoimmune thing is the hydrocortisone helping kind of tame that you know that's a good question because i would i would think that like people aren't just going to have an acute decompensation in their thyroid i mean you know some of the like hashimoto's and stuff can come on pretty fast but i would think it's probably seen more in people that for whatever reason have like a, a history of hypothyroid be it surgically induced or um hashimoto's and who are on thyroid um, replacement medications and then probably just stop taking it abruptly hmm. but that's just a guess i i would have to double check that i wonder if it's also like maybe it's just to counteract the treatment that you're giving them like maybe you're giving them iv like levothyroxine to treat their mixed edema and you're also giving the iv iv hydrocortisone to like stop them from going into some like pseudo graves or some, you know, like thyroid storm or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Like, find the balancing act. Yeah. All know. right. Well, no one, no one, uh, use any of that for, uh, for your studies. That's just all conjecture. Yeah. One thing I do know is, uh, mixed edema coma has pretty bad outcomes, even if it's rapidly recognized and treated. I think it's something like a, a 50% mortality rate, even with treatment. Yeah. I think I was reading something like that as well. 30 to 30 to 50%. No bueno. Yeah. Well, anyway, should we get away from the thyroid for a bit? Let's do it. So what if you have a uh, old man who comes in, he just gets some routine labs or whatever, gets gets some liver function tests, and you find that he has an elevated alkaline phosphatase? 
Oh no. Isolated elevated alkaline phos. Mm-hmm. Is that what I'm hearing? Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, um well anytime I see alka phos elevated I immediately start thinking about either kind of the biliary system or bones. Mm-hmm. And if I've classically learned anything, it's that isolated alka phos is something that you consider with pagets. Correct. That was good. I felt like ding, I, ding, ding. I was trying to not give you a whole lot of detail on that one, but very good. And it's interesting, too, because you would think, you know, it's like a increased state of, like, bone turnover and remodeling and stuff. You'd expect, at least when I think about it, like, calcium and, and phosphorus to be up, but they're typically normal. That's interesting. I wonder if it's just because there's a constant remodeling cycle. So just as, just as many osteoblasts are working as osteoclasts, and therefore, like, the kind of equilibrium stays. Yeah, that makes sense to same. me. I'll drink to that. Hemostatic. Yeah. Right. Ugh. And some other other kind of classic vignettes that they'll they'll toss you away for for an old guy with Titus disease is if he uh, says that his hats don't fit anymore, um, or that he has a hard time hearing people because Pagets can actually if it, if you have right. bone remodeling in the skull it'll it'll make your hats not fit and it'll also because your ears have bones in them um, can also kind of what? cause those to stop working properly. Yeah, on a little side tangent to that. I had a patient recently who um, had pretty significant, like, hearing symptoms, like hyperacusis, like everything was super loud, mm-hmm. and it all stemmed from her uh, listening to music too loudly in her AirPods. Her AirPods started overheating, and then they popped, and she got this barotrauma in her ear that caused her to just have all these crazy symptoms like hyperacusis and vertigo and, like, wow. tinnitus, and it was interesting. But, yeah. Don't listen to your music too loud, guys. Don't listen to this podcast uh, too loud. Listen to it on Whisper Quiet. If you can hear us right now, it's too loud. Right. You should only be able to hear the slurp. You want (laughs) ASMR. You only hear the slurp. So you only know when something's been wrong. Right. What kind of diseases would you think about if somebody did present with uh, parathyroid hyperplasia? I have no idea. So that's actually um, MEN1 is actually the classic one. Hmm. Oh, I get what you're saying. Not like an infectious disease, more like a interesting familial, like inherited disease. Men mm-hmm. one. That's right. I remember men one because of its three P's: the pancreatic tumors, the parathyroid hyperplasia, as well as the pituitary adenomas. PPP men one. Mm-hmm. Also known as Wormer syndrome. Oh yeah. If that helps anybody at all. That's uh, that's one of those things that you tend to not remember. Men type two A. Sipple syndrome. Hmm. Sip on that. I'll sip. I'll sip for that. Cheers. I'm swallowing a little slower today, just so I don't choke. Yeah, I don't want you to aspirate. Yeah. Um, but if you did, where would you expect to see chest X-ray changes? Mm, I'd expect it maybe in the right lower lobe, potentially right middle, depending on how I was positioned. Well, I hope you're not recording this podcast laying down. But yeah, exactly. Oh, I'll, I'll sit up. Um, so kind of along the lines of men, what if somebody showed up and they had this weird kind of rash um, kind of around their mouth and like in their, their groin area and stuff? Glucagon. Yeah. A glucagon what? Glu- glucagonoma. <laughs> <laughs> right. Very good. So you, you've got that classic association. Do you happen to know the name of the rash though? 
Like oh. awful. No, I don't. So it's called uh, necrolytic migratory erythema. Uh, yes. Which Necrolytic. I, Sounds scary. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've seen any pictures of the rash, but it looks pretty nasty. Let me look it up real quick. It kind of reminds me Next. of uh, some of like, the patches of just like skin softening and central necrosis that you see with like Stephen oh, Johnson's wow. syndrome or something. Yep. That is no bueno. That is not fun. Yeah. There's a lot of bad symptoms with uh, glucoconomas, aren't there? Uh, yeah, I think doesn't it also cause um, you get like diabetes symptoms basically, because the glucagon like suppresses insulin and then it also just keeps your sugars high. Right. Yeah, you have glucose intolerance. I think you can get pretty depressed. Yeah. You get these rashes. Um, I think it's like also leads to to like a hypercoagulable state in some people and um, hmm. diarrhea and just all these horrible things. Yeah. Weight loss, stomatitis, like you mentioned. Right. So, well, I'm good that it's rather rare. I've personally never seen one. Yeah, I think like the incidence of, of the men's syndromes, I mean, you, it's one of those things where it's like you learn about it in medical school so often that you think it's way more common than it actually is. But I think the incidence is like in the range of like a couple cases per 100,000 if that even yeah I'm looking it up now glucagonomas are rare with an annual incidence of 0.01 to 0.1 cases per 100,000 wow yeah so that's pretty low yeah along the same lines of calcium even though we're not talking about calcium <laughs> um if someone came in with a acute hypercalcemia, regardless of the issue, you're just worried about the hypercalcemia, anything you'd give them immediately? Yeah, you want to give them magnesium. Oh, yeah? Or insulin. I mean, you also give them fluids. But magnesium's a, another potential treatment. Tell me more about this magnesium. So, um, it has something... I don't understand the exact mechanism of action, but I just remember the association in my, association in my head because they're both cations with a plus charge but um they tend to compete for the same binding sites and so uh, like for example if somebody has uh, like if you're giving some magnesium for um preeclampsia and they're they have like magnesium toxicity you can actually give calcium to help treat it and i think the vice versa is also true if if they have acute hypercalcemia Yep, and I'm reading here, because magnesium actually wasn't one of my answer choices, so that's news to me and something I've just learned. But it says magnesium is essential for the absorption um, of calcium, so that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Get it into the cells. Um, and then IV fluids were uh, kind of my number one, which you said. And then they also mentioned kind of loop diuretics, which makes sense if you want to lose some calcium, right. give someone some loops. And then uh, IV bisphosphonates, interestingly. So... Hmm. I, I wouldn't have thought that. I feel like I know bisphosphonates obviously help prevent like hypercalcemia from bone remodeling, but I wouldn't expect them to have that much of an acute effect on, on calcium levels. Right. So, yeah, I wonder like how practical that is. I think for the learner that's listening to this, um, fluids is like the big thing is that you want to start them on a lot of fluids immediately to kind of flush out their system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the rest is kind of probably not not petered out and probably varies depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I 
you're right, fluids is definitely the, the first line thing. So let's say somebody comes in and they're having uh, some copious diarrhea and they, they notice that they're intermittently getting, you know, kind of flushed, like if they drink alcohol or if they go out in the sun or anything. And uh, they they don't have a history of asthma or anything, but they're starting to have this like weird cough oh, or no. feel like they have a hard time breathing. Uh, what's going on? Yes, they have a serotonin secreting tumor, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, exactly. Is that correct? And so classically known as carcinoid syndrome, mm -hmm. probably from a carcinoid tumor that yep. secretes serotonin, can be found in many places, including your stomach and small intestine and maybe even your pancreas. Yeah. But I think largely your small intestine. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So I think... Um... I don't think it's the large intestine. I think it's the small intestine and the yep. the pancreas. Um, but would they be symptomatic at that point? Would they be symptomatic? It needs to get into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess what you're asking is, does it kind of, so they're having like symptoms of asthma and such. So this has gotten probably to the lungs. So if it's if it's a GI tumor, um, METs to the liver is actually all it takes for it to uh, start causing symptoms because the liver has some amount of uh, ability to process serotonin. But once it's in the liver, then it can get into the systemic blood supply. Um, and if you were listening to a murmur in somebody who had had METs, so they're kind of having systemic symptoms, what what would you hear, or where would you have symptoms? Well, the serotonin will go to the, I guess the manifestations will lead to right-sided disease of the mm -hmm. heart. Exactly. Um, top of my head, you'd hear murmurs, um, you know, probably in the tricuspid area, um, maybe the pulmonary valve, and these murmurs likely get worse upon kind of anything that brings more blood back to the heart. Yeah, exactly. Um and so the other thing to remember with right-sided heart murmurs is uh, inspiration will make them worse. Right. Kind of for the same reason, right? More preload, more mm -hmm. fluid coming back to exactly. the heart. That makes sense. That's probably and, easier than making them squat. Yeah. Um, and the only time that they'll have left-sided heart symptoms is if the metastases, if the Mets have actually um, spread to the lungs because then they're not getting metabolized there anymore. And, and they'll end up in the, the left-sided heart as well. Jeez. Sounds horrible. Sounds anxiety-inducing. Yeah. So if you were worried about that in somebody, what would you check in their urine? Oh, gosh. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's it's 5-H-I-A-A levels are what you check, uh, which is a metabolite of serotonin. Right. I it's like 5-hydroxytryptophan something. So basically a metabolite of serotonin. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That makes sense. So people just need to watch out for that. They, even if it's not totally spelled out, know that that's the abbreviation. Mm -hmm. Perfect. All right. We have a patient now that comes in and you want to test them for Cushing's. Anything you'd start off with? Yeah. So there's uh, Cushing's for everybody at home is a elevated cortisol state so there's actually three tests you can do you can do a um, late night salivary cortisol test you can do a 
overnight dex methazone suppression test, or you can do a 24-hour urine collection um, to look for catecholamines. Perfect. And can you tell me a little bit more about this dexamethasone suppression test? Yeah, sure. So in uh, normal individuals who aren't having any um, extra cortisol, giving somebody dexamethasone, which in and of itself is a mineralocorticoid, will naturally suppress their um, their own body's cortisol production. So if you if you give them dexamethasone, normally it should suppress their cortisol when you measure it in the urine. And if it doesn't, then that suggests that there's um, something going on that's that's causing it to be elevated. Exactly. Yep. Basically, the feedback loop should be there, and if it's not working properly, then you know there's some autonomous cells that are kind of going haywire. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I think uh, Cushing's is always a little confusing, and it's always something that's good to review before the boards. Yeah, definitely. I feel like there's regardless of the exam you're taking step one step two the medicine shelf there's there's almost always one or two questions about about either cushing's or uh, addison's yep i'll drink to that cheers there's gonna be so many ants on my floor tomorrow <laughs> it's gonna be so sad how are you gonna like what are you gonna do about it i have ant spray somewhere but i can't find it right now it's really bothering me Damn. What should I do? What are some home home remedies? I think you can get like borax or something, which is like a detergent. You mix it with sugar and then like they walk over it and it like kills them somehow. I think that's something to do with the respiratory system. I'm just going to put peanut butter in my bathtub so that they can go to the peanut butter and, and then you ignore just the kitchen. Wash them down. That's smart. Like it's like a honey pot. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of a follow-up question, but what if somebody shows up and they have a, a moon face and a buffalo? What's going on? Mm. The classic moon face. I'm starting to think about Cushing's as well. Yeah, so that's that's Cushing's. Um, something we both wanted to talk about. And uh, do you know what the more politically correct term is for a buffalo hump? <laughs> no, enlighten me. So it is a dorsocervical fat pad which is a mm-hmm. bit of a mouthful, but that's what they want to call it these days. Yeah, God forbid you tell a patient they have a buffalo hump. Yeah, that kind of a moony face, bud. We're going to gonna check you for Cushing's. Yeah, your face is very moon-like, and your hump is very buffalo-esque. <laughs> All right, I have uh, this one question. Patient comes in and you're worried about diabetes insipidus. How would you test them initially? So you can do what's called a water deprivation test where you don't let them drink anything for a while and uh, you measure their urine and blood. um, Or I guess you can get away with just doing urine initially. Um, Serum osms, urine osms, osms, and uh, sodium levels. Perfect. So then you do the water deprivation test. And you're like, hey, your urine is still really dilute, and we've been kind of depriving you of water for quite some time. This shouldn't be the case. What's the next thing we should do to kind of decipher between central versus nephrogenic? Yes, you can give them desmopressin uh, intranasally, otherwise known as DDADP. I've seen it written both ways. Perfect. And what would you expect with one case or the other? So if it's central, central nephrogenic, or central GI is due to a... um, 
lack of ADH, so giving them synthetic ADH will will help them concentrate their urine. Whereas if exactly. it's nephrogenic and it's from the kidneys, then it won't really do anything. Right. If it's a kidney issue, giving them ADH is a mute point because they already have the ADH. It's just not kind of connecting. Right. So if it is central diabetes insipidus, for whatever reason, the treatment would be to continue giving them that DDAVP. Mm-hmm. What if it's nephrogenic? Yeah, I guess the... You can try thiazides to promote like some volume depletion and stimulate water reabsorption, but I'm not entirely sure how well that works. Yeah, I I'm not sure either. It's one of those treatments that it like it doesn't really make sense. Like, why would you give a diuretic to somebody who's volume down? Um, it's a weird workaround that only the nephrologists understand. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, the classic joke is even the the smartest nephrologist is dumber than the dumbest kidney. So. It's just one of those things, I think. Damn. We just lost, like, half our following. Really? Sorry. Yeah, everyone's been telling me they're ne- nephrology-bound. Dang. Stats don't lie. Well, sorry to our future analytics. It's my beef. And uh, what would you think about if somebody did the water deprivation test and their, their urine concentrated all on its own? If you deprive them of their water and their urine concentrated, that would be something you would expect. Right. But then why would they be coming in complaining of peeing too much? Oh, I get what you're saying. I guess I'm also thinking about diabetes mellitus. But uh, you're saying you're saying their urine is super concentrated? No. Um, so I'm saying that they, they come in complaining of kind of the classic, uh, diabetes insipidus symptoms. Hmm. And then you do the water deprivation test and their urine concentrates. Oh, I get what you're saying. So then we're thinking about like the, like psychogenic, um, polydipsia kind of picture. Yeah, exactly. Got to work through that. That was good. That was a good question. I forgot about that. Yeah, and it gets kind of to an interesting diagnostic point, too, because um, we hadn't really talked about this yet, but, you know, psychogenic polydipsia is seen with a lot of um, psychiatric conditions, and certain medications can make people uh, want to drink more water. Um, but at the same time, that's, that's the same population that can potentially be exposed to lithium, um, which can also cause diabetes insipidus in and of itself. So doing the water deprivation test will really help suss those two causes out. Yep. No, that's a great teaching point. So, uh, you have a short woman who comes in with a a webbed neck, um, and maybe she has some sort of lymphedema or a swelling in her hands. What are you thinking about? That makes me think immediately of Turner's. Yeah. And, uh, say they're you know about the age where they would normally go through puberty why am i uh, asking this in an endocrine podcast turner's patient going through puberty it's going to uh be tough for them they might have a harder time or maybe they have a delayed puberty or potentially don't even go through puberty at all right so the uh 
majority of people with Turner syndrome have what's called streak ovaries uh, that don't really produce enough estrogen. So you have to actually treat them with estrogen or hormone replacement therapy um, to help them go through puberty and reach a more typical adult height. Hmm. That's a great point. I think people forget there's always like a pediatric and kind of aspect of endocrine that often gets ignored. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting tie-ins. Um, and even more pediatric than that, uh, what if a a baby shows up in your cardiology office and they have a uh, heart block? What did mom have? Oh, don't tell me. Baby had a heart block. Did mom have... I don't know why I want to say lupus. Yeah, exactly. Um, Oh, nice. So, uh... Neonatal lupus is the term for uh, for babies who who have lupus syndromes because of their mom's uh, autoantibodies transferring across the placenta, um, and it's classically associated, I believe, with the SSA antibody, more specifically. Yep, I remember that now. That's a great question. And uh, what if you had another baby who is kind of shaky, seems a little altered, and is having trouble breathing um maybe you get a chest x-ray and they have kind of a a white out picture what is well first of all i guess what is this kind of a multi-part question what does a, a white out make you think about in a newborn in a newborn in a white out i think about i don't think about meconium i think about What is the condition of like, is it like neonatal respiratory distress? I'm, am I yeah, just making things exactly. up now? No, you're right. Oh, okay. It's basically the same thing as ours. It's just in the newborn. Um, and if, what if they present with that and they're, they're kind of shaky and maybe you do a, a finger stick blood glucose and it's like 20, what do you think's going on there? The sure. baby shaky. Yeah. Or what does what does mom have that caused both of those issues? Mm, mom had diabetes, like probably maternal diabetes. Yep, exactly. Gestational diabetes, excuse me. Yeah, I think uh, either one can can cause cause this actually, but um, interestingly enough, high high glucose levels won't won't get across the placenta. Or sorry, no, high insulin levels won't get across the placenta, but but glucose will, and so. Um, in the newborn, that'll cause a uh, beta cell hyperplasia in the pancreas, so the, the baby will actually start making more insulin while it's still in the mother, um, and that will cause the baby to get hypoglycemic when they're born because they're they're cut off from that rich glucose source from mom's right. blood, and then they also will um, actually have underdeveloped lungs because uh, high insulin levels inhibit surfactant production and uh, lung maturation. Right, makes sense. Yeah, diabetes in the mom can cause a lot of issues like that. Mm-hmm. The babies can be uh, quite large too, right? So I think I've seen questions where um, the baby had some issue, the shoulder got stuck, um, something, and it happened in the question prompt, and then they ask, like, what did the mother likely have? And the answer is often diabetes. Yep. Yeah, that comes up a lot. How do you like your uh, fronts? Um, it's not bad. It's pretty, it's pretty neutral. I'd give it like a 
maybe a six like i'd have it again it's i don't know it kind of reminds me of of like bud light or something like it's just something that you would you would drink you wouldn't really think that much of it hmm. how's uh your beer doing citrus and piney i like it more now and i think i think i was a little too uh, harsh on it last week i think it's um it's a little bit more complex than i'm used to so i didn't appreciate it as much and mm-hmm. now that i'm having it again and kind of had to train your palate a little bit yeah exactly my palate is getting trained very right. well um i'm rather naive in the, the world of craft breweries and talk about uh, lifelong learning lifelong learning right that's what they always talk about all right guys that's it for today's podcast as always shoot us an email if you have any questions concerns or insights until next time stay frosty we will see you all soon bye-bye now later